Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. Hey, Robert. What's your favorite possession movie? Ooh, well, there, there's so many. Uh, I guess I've reached the point where I'm not as into demon possession. I, w- I want a movie about robots possessing people or alien entities possessing people uh, or, of course, um, weird uh, uh, angelic Christ figures from another planet possessing people, such as in Larry Cohen's God Told Me To. Oh, yeah, yeah. there you go. How about in uh, maybe my favorite is The Visitor. Ooh. You know, that one. Filmed in Atlanta oh, in the yes, 1970s, yes. you get to see the uh, the old highways and everything, but it's got that Italian sheen. And there's a little girl who gets possessed by, I think, a Satan from another planet. Oh yeah, John Huston's in that one, right? Yeah, and I think a very disoriented Sam Peckinpah plays a doctor <laughs> in it. Cool. Well, you know, another one that comes to mind is of is the Toho horror film Matango. Are you familiar with this one? I know about it because you've mentioned it, but I've never seen it. Oh, it's a it's a fabulous uh, story about a, a weird fungus on a, essentially a monster island. It's probably somewhere in the uh, uh, in, in the region of Monster Island, like the and, King Kong. Yeah, one. yeah. And it, uh, it this fungus takes over people's bodies and gradually turns them into not only uh, fungi infested humanoid monsters, but into a straight up walking mushroom of death. That's awesome, but. To what end? Like, what do mushrooms want that they can't get on their own and they need a human body for? Well, you know, mushrooms need to move around. Mushroom, well, mushrooms, of course, just need to reproduce and spread and continue the genetic mission. And sometimes that involves, in fiction, walking on two legs or, in reality, walking on, say, six legs. Whoa. And that brings us to our topic today. Robert, I would say this is one that has been frequently requested by listeners, I think. Um, it, it's a topic that if you're one of these parasite fan geeks like a lot of you out there are, mm-hmm. we know, you've probably heard of this before, uh, but we've gotten a lot of requests and it's a great topic. We've never devoted a full episode to it before, so I think it's finally time to talk about ophiocordyceps. That's right, especially since there's actually an update to the story. Yeah. Uh, that's the, the really exciting part here is that because uh, we've, we've touched on it before on past episodes, but this time we get to cover it in more depth and discuss the latest information. And the, the cool thing about the update is that it's it's definitely a positive one. I notice very often, because we try to practice responsible scientific skepticism on the show, that whenever you get an update to a sensational science story, mm-hmm. more often than not, the update is that really sensational thing you learned last year actually is wrong. Right. And now you know, I can see where that can turn people off. Uh, every now and then, I mean, sometimes it's something like, oh, Pl- you know, Pluto has lost its planetary status, and you feel a little hurt by that. Yeah, sad trombone. Yeah, or uh, a big one that I've noticed with people is finding out or being being told that, say, a Tyrannosaurus Rex had feathers. Yeah, and then that kind of destroys your childhood dream or your cinematic vision of what a T Rex should be, and uh, and I, I have, uh, I think we are both in agreement that dinosaurs with feathers. Uh, are cool. Uh, uh, and actually scarier. Yeah, and, uh, and scarier, especially a, a if they're fuzzy, covered in fuzz. Yeah. Yes, a fuzzy Tyrannosaurus Rex, you know this to be true in your heart, is scarier <laughs> than one with just regular lizard scales. Yeah, but I have to say, this case with uh, with uh, Ophiocordyceps, this is not a case of feathered dinosaurs. This is a, a case of the new scientific information making an already terrifying scenario even more frightening, and an and an already c- complex uh, uh, system of uh, parasitism, even more complicated. Absolutely. So before we lather up your brain with those nightmares, I figure we should take a look generally at behavior controlling parasites as a sort of class of organism, right. uh, because that that's where the Ophiocordyceps really gets its reputation is the fact that. It is a fungus that has some control over the behavior of its host. And right. it's not the only organism like this in the world. Oh, no. There, there are numerous examples that we could spend a great deal of time going through. Not even all of them, but just some of the key examples. We're not going to do that. We're going to hit like maybe three, I think. Uh, but the thing is you have to – in a way you have to appreciate these simpler 
models of uh, of mind control uh, parasites in order to appreciate what is essentially the Mona Lisa of, of mind control <laughs> parasites. Uh, its uh, eyes follow you no matter where you go. Yeah, well, and it's just it's just the the, the pinnacle of uh, of complexity and and beauty if you find uh, organisms of this sort beautiful. Also, like the Mona Lisa, surrounded by people taking pictures of it constantly. Yes, indeed. Okay, so this first one we're going to look at is one you've probably heard of before because it is the result of a panic. And I will have to debunk one of the the creepier parts of the panic about this, but the organism itself still is very cool. So this is going to be Toxoplasma gondii. Yes. Um, this is a microbial protozoan parasite. It's responsible for the disease Toxoplasmosis in animals. And lots of humans and pets are today already infected with T. gondii. They get infected at some point in their lives. But there's only one known animal host that allows this parasite to achieve sexual reproduction. And that host is, of course, our lord and master, the common cat. (laughs) Uh, It might be inside you right now, but if so, it's not having sex. It's only having sex if it's in your cat. Yeah, and it's it's kind of like with people that travel around. Uh, You're more inclined to look after your home, I guess. And then when if you're staying in a hotel or a guest house, then, you know, who cares? You can just wreck the place. Uh, that's, that's kind of what occurs with 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 uh, with with uh, T. Gandhi. Yeah, is that uh, the, the cat alone is unaffected? It's every other species that seems to be uh, warped to some degree by its uh, occupancy. Right. So if you're imagining what life is like as a parasite, you might think, "Hey, it's great! I can infect all kinds of organisms." But that's not necessarily great, is it? Because what if you need to get into a cat to reproduce, mm-hmm. but you're stuck in some other organism? You've infected a human or something like that. You're basically going. Nowhere. Right. So many of these parasitic cycles and they're love. I love looking at, at illustrations of these cycles. It's 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 kind of a careful platforming video game. You have uh-huh. to jump from here to here to here in order to complete this cycle. And uh, if you miss that jump, you're toast. And also, if you jump to the wrong organism, you're potentially toast. Uh, or if you wind up in the right organism but end up in the wrong portion of it, uh, you're <laughs> potentially toast, and so is the host. Right, so let's chart those jumps. Let's say you are a colony of T. Gandhi, and you're stuck inside a rat. And you've got a hankering for some sexual reproduction. What are you going to do? Like, you don't have a way to hop out of the rat and go looking for a litter box to stake out. Right. Uh, you don't have legs, so you've got to find some way to get the rat into the cat. Yeah, you've got to essentially steer starship rat uh, into the cat. And for a while, it was hypothesized that parasites like this might actually control the behavior of the host in order to get where they needed to go. And in the case of rats infected with T. Gandhi, recent studies have shown that this is exactly what happens. So I want to look at one study published in the year 2000 in the Proceedings of the Royal Society of London B, Biological Sciences. And this was by Manuel Burdoy, Joanne Webster, and David MacDonald. And this is called Fatal Attraction in Rats Infected with Toxoplasma Gandhi. So the study tested the exploration behavior of rats infected with T. Gandhi and a control group of uninfected rats in an outdoor pen during the night. And in these pens, there were areas marked with various odors. So you'd have a neutral smell. This would be clean straw bedding, a, quote, own smell, like your own smell, which is the rat's own straw bedding. You can probably guess this smelled like the rat's own urine. Mm -hmm. You had a rabbit smell, which was rabbit urine, and you had a cat smell, which was cat urine. And what did they find? Well, unsurprisingly, the control rats, the rats that did not have the toxoplasma infection, paid a lot of visits to the areas marked with their own smell, but they really tended to avoid the areas that smelled like cat urine. You don't want to hang out where your worst nightmare takes bathroom breaks. But the T. Gandhi-infected rats made way more visits to the cat urine-marked areas. The way the researchers described this, it wasn't just that the parasite infection made them less afraid of cats, it manifested as a kind of bizarre suicidal attraction to the smell of cats. So it looks like what's happening is that T. Gandhi uh, manipulates the behavior of its rat hosts, causing them to wander around in cat country until they get eaten. And then when the cat eats the rat, the rat contains tissue cysts of the T. Gandhi that infect the cat, and then the protozoan can finally get around to some sexual reproduction. 
And I think this is interesting because it's it's a really devious trick, but one that strikes me as not necessarily complicated within the rat. Yes, yeah, it's kind of a flipping of a switch, the reversal of a setting. Yeah, you, I think it's possible that all you'd have to do here is find a way to turn off the avoidance component of the rat's natural fear response. Uh, and, and once you've done that, the arousal component of the fear response, unchecked by avoidance, could sort of lead to these suicidal type behaviors on its own. Now that alone is pretty fascinating. I, I, and I've, I've, I've written about, uh, Toxo, it seems like countless times uh-huh. <laughs> over the past 10 years or so. Um, and, and I, I'm always just intrigued by that basic, uh, concept. But, uh, some have taken it even further and, uh, and have looked at what is Toxo potentially doing to humans. Yeah, and for many years, I think there was legitimate worry that, well, if it does this in rats, is Toxoplasma gondii leading to some cases of human mental illness or mm-hmm. risky behavior patterns in humans? Uh, it's a reasonable thing to wonder about, but I, I do want to quash the panic here. Given more recent research, I think it's unlikely because um, so there was a 2016 paper by Karen Sugden et al. published in PLOS One, and it tried to track the effects of toxoplasma seropositivity in a sample of 837 subjects, 28 percent of whom were positive. And other than an extremely small average increase in the number of suicide attempts, there was no measurable psychological difference in humans with toxoplasma infection and those without. Uh, and the suicide attempt difference is small enough that it you know, could be noise. Uh, to quote from their conclusions, quote, on the whole, there was little evidence that T. Gandhi was related to increased risk of psychiatric disorder, poor impulse control, personality aberrations, or neurocognitive impairment. So... Don't worry too much about the toxoplasma in yourself. Yeah, that, that's good because, because like I say, I've, I've covered toxo enough over the past 10 years and I've been a cat owner over the past 10 years. So you can't help but fall into some, at times, almost kind of supernatural thinking about it. You're like, well, there might be nothing to this, but if there is, I sure am around a cat a lot. And, uh, and then you start like second guessing all your motivations, uh, in your yeah. life and your behavior and, yeah, uh, and wh- wondering just how much of you is in your, in your actions, how much of it can be, uh, blamed upon the cat. Why can't I stop gambling? It's my cat. Yeah. <laughs> all right. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to roll through some more examples before we move on to our prime brain hijacker today. Hey, all right, we're back. So this is another uh, favorite of mine, uh, and I've I've actually told stories about it, like personal accounts of this parasite uh, in the past on the podcast, but I'll spare everyone uh, the the actual tales. Uh, But uh, what I want to talk about are uh, parasitoids from the phylum uh, Nematomorpha. They're also known as horsehair worms because Mm. these thread-like round worms resemble the hair of a horse's tail or mane. And uh, as larvae, they take up residence inside a cricket, a mantis, a beetle, or other host organism. But as adults, they're free-living uh, uh, organisms that live generally in, like, shallow pools of water or really damp soil. Okay. Now, male and female horsehair, horsehair worms mate in that damp soil or the fresh water, and then the females lay millions of eggs. So we have a similar situation, though, about these eggs have to, these eggs need to go somewhere. They right. need to complete this cycle. You so, need to get from one place to another, but you can't crawl there. Yes. So th- these eggs, what they do is they, they hatch, and then the tiny larvae uh, insist uh, on vegetation near the water's edge. So that, they form these like hard structures. So that's E-N-C-Y-S-T, not I-N-S-I-S-T. Right. Yeah, they can't, they can't, uh, they can't insist upon anything, but they can insist a leaf. Okay. So they're on the leaf and then up pops a, a cricket or other suitable host, drops by, and it eats this incri- this in- insisted larva along with the vegetation. Yum. Or in the, the cases of, say, a carnivorous mantis, it acquires the parasite by devouring an already infected intermediate host, such as a mosquito larva. Okay. Now, once inside its target host, the cyst covering dissolves, and it allows the juvenile worm to escape, bore through the gut wall, and start absorbing nutrients. And then it grows and grows, just becoming just a longer and, and, and thicker um uh, worm inside the creature. Just you, know, you imagine it just coiled and coiled inside the body cavity. So if you're the insect, it's like congratulations, you've got a new major organ. Right. Yeah. It's essentially a xenomorph. It grows until it's time to just burst out. Uh, 
And uh, the, the, here's the thing: it'll it'll certainly abandon ship if the host dies, mm-hmm. uh, and that's that's what I have observed in the past. Like somebody stomps a cricket in band class because they think the cricket's gross, and then this disgusting organism emerges from the cricket. Whoa! Yeah, but of course it doesn't want to emerge on the the floor of a of your band uh, room. It wants to emerge uh, near uh, fresh water or damp soil. Okay. So how does it get there? Well, there are two theories here. Uh, one is that the worm instills a crazed thirst in the host so that it seeks out water. So it's like, I'm so thirsty, I must go to a large body of water? Right. Okay. And then uh, the second one is the worm, uh, the second theory is that the worm simply waits until the host finds water on its own and then it bursts forth. Okay. So, so it's like, I detect that your body is filling up with liquid right now. It's time to jump yeah, out. Yeah, must be in an area with liquid. I shall jump out now and hopefully uh, find the habitat I need. Now, according to a 2001 paper from the German journal Zoologischer Anzeiger, <laughs> the thirst hypothesis is supported by observa- observations of suicidal behavior uh, in infected mantises in southern France that seemingly jump into the river and give birth to the worm that consumes them. Uh, and by the way, sometimes it's twins. Oh, yeah. Sometimes you they don't have one enormous uh, uh, nematode growing inside them. They have two. So you can't really uh, on the uh, the second hypothesis uh, just waiting until it's drinking explain all the like suicidal jumping into water. Right. So it it seems like uh, there, there's reason to lean in the direction of. Um, of 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 mind control, mind manipulation, mm-hmm. uh, and but in this case, it is uh, as with the, the the rat and toxo, seemingly fairly simple. Yeah. Like make your host feel thirstier than normal uh, when you are ready to emerge and find water. Well, I admit that's a good one, but how about some parasitic wasps? Oh, well, I certainly love parasitic wasps. I love I love wasps and bees in general, and I, I continue to find tremendous joy in the fact that my five-year-old son's only imaginary friends are his, quote, bee and wasp friends. So he what? Has, yeah, he has two bees and two wasps. Are they normal-sized or are they larger than normal? They're normal-sized, and okay. they live on his head or sometimes are flying around his head. Uh and, uh, yeah, and I'll forget that they're there, and then suddenly he'll bring them up. And uh, I, I presume they are always there to him. Now, are they anthropomorphic? Do they speak? No. No? No. I think oh, okay. the, the only difference is that they don't sting, except they will sting, like, monsters or bad guys or something. Nice. Uh, I think that's been explained to me. But uh, otherwise, they're just animals. So I, I really I really like that. But as into bees and wasps uh, as uh, my son is... I don't think he's ready for the truly diabolical examples of parasitic wasps uh, that really outbody horror our grimmest nightmares. All right, well, so just a little background: parasitic, uh, prehistoric parasitic wasps, uh, as far back as the Jurassic period, they would use their pointy um, ovipositors, which is a female-only reproductive structure, to lay eggs directly onto living insects such as caterpillars, uh, which uh, the, the hatching larva would then consume. But why lay your eggs on a caterpillar when, when, with a little evolution, you can lay them directly inside your victim? Nice. Essentially, the, you're using that ovipositor uh, as a um, as a surgical device. So it, it grows into a sharp, sometimes saw-toothed instrument that helps a wasp better perform the necessary surgery. And since the chosen insect hosts uh, tend to uh, take uh, offense and fight off the wasp's advances, the ovipositors also evolve to pack a venomous punch. And so, like, the, the end result is you see something like uh, a honeybee, which doesn't engage in this kind of parasitic uh, activity at all, but still retains uh, a, a potent ovipositor. Oh, yeah, okay. Now, a number of modern parasitic wasps continue this very practice, though, either peppering the outsides or filling the bodies of their hosts with sometimes dozens of eggs. Other wasps evolved away from the practice, uh, but even with them, the venomous stinger remains. Uh, not only uh, no longer an instrument of reproduction, but a potent biological weapon. Mm-hmm. But some of the examples of parasitic wasp egg laying uh, are, are are rather straightforward, while others are uh, are just really diabolical. Uh, such is the case of Dinocampus coccinellae, a common parasitic wasp of, of the spotted lady beetle, uh, Coleomegala uh, maculata. So the essential reproductive strategy here is much the same uh, with many other species of parasitic wasps. She, she uses her ovipositor to surgically implant her egg inside the body of the chosen host organism. Uh-huh. 
But where this gets crazy, though, is, is when the actual emergence occurs, uh, what you might refer to as a, a chest burst uh, mitzvah, if you will. <laughs> um, that's when that's when it gets really weird and noteworthy. So normally, uh, you know, you would expect a host organism to mercifully die at this point. You right. Know? Yeah. I mean, that's how it goes down in the alien movies. Right. Once the xenomorph has emerged from your body, you you blessedly uh, expire. Right. You're not walking around for a few days with it poking out of your stomach. <laughs> right. Uh, though that would be a fun uh, Halloween costume, I guess, or the puppet built in. Uh, but, uh, but th- th- where this example gets, uh, gets weird though is that not only does the host organism live, not only does the ladybug live, uh, but uh, a little behavior modification forces it to hang around and quote unquote guard its parasite baby as it grows into adulthood beneath its protective bulk. Huh. And scientists believe that uh, the, the, what's happening here is the secretions left by the larva when it bursts out might play a role in reprogramming the host. Wow. And then you would think, all right, well, finally the ladybug gets to die. Uh-huh. But, uh, you know, you would, you would think surely it's, it's suffered enough and it can just, uh, it can, it can be at peace. But there's no such luck. Uh, <laughs> because, you know, this is the insect world and things right. are a bit cruel and, and, and weird. There are no but, insect politicians. Yeah. yeah as, uh, as the great, uh, Brundlefly told us. So researchers found that 25% of manipulated uh, ladybugs uh, recovered normal behavior following this ordeal. What? So they got to go around with with the memory of this good thing. They probably don't have episodic memory. Yeah. (laughs) They just uh, that also speaks to just the sturdiness of uh, of insects, really, to, to thrive in such a cruel world. You know, you, you've got to be incredibly resilient. So that's one of my favorite examples of uh, of, of, of parasitic uh, uh, behavior, uh, parasitic reproduction with organisms. Well, Robert, I think you're wrong. I think that is an ideal imaginary friend for a child. <laughs> because this imaginary friend not only might sting bad guys and monsters, but could enslave another insect to protect you from bad guys and monsters on its behalf. Oh, yeah. I mean, they're ultimately, they're kind of terrifying organisms, aren't they? At least if you're um, if you're a ladybug or say a tarantula, mm-hmm. so uh, that's another thing. I can only uh, I, I I can see like some people are afraid of of spiders. Well, then if you're afraid of spiders, then you have to be a huge wasp fan because <laughs> you know they go around just terrorizing the bejesus out of out of spider populations. I don't know if you've ever uh, uh, bust open uh, like as a child uh, dirt dauber nests. Oh, and see like all the spiders that they've stuffed in there for their larvae to consume. It's, it's pretty wonderful. All right, but well, still, as beautiful as these examples are, again, these pale in comparison to the Mona Lisa. Of, of parasitic uh, brainwashing. That's right. Crowd in, get your camera ready. It's time to visit the masterpiece. And so picture this, a carpenter ant colony in a rainforest. You're going to be in maybe the Amazon or in a Thai rainforest. And so you'll see thousands of ants swarming around on the nest uh, or traveling out down the trunk of a tree into foraging trains. But if you look close, one of these ants is not moving along with the others. Instead of moving along in a train or swarming, it's frozen in place. And its body is sort of curling up around itself, almost like it's trying to touch its head to its anus. And it's curling and writhing and and pulsing its whole body. And it keeps scraping at its antennae with its forelimbs. Something's obviously wrong with this ant. Yeah, that doesn't sound right at all. No. Uh, And then finally, it falls from its nest to the forest floor. And from there, it begins to move slowly, almost like it's drunk, sort of crawling around awkwardly, and then eventually up the stalk of a nearby sapling plant. And when it reaches just about 25 centimeters above the forest floor, it aligns its body with the primary vein on the underside of a leaf, and then it clamps down as hard as it can with its mandibles. The ant will never leave this spot. Within a few days, the ant's going to be dead, and its jaws will still be locked onto the vein tissue of this leaf, and a crazy-looking thing will start to happen. A huge spike starts to grow out of a hole in the back of the ant's head, like this gigantic single devil horn, growing longer and longer, longer than the ant itself, until it becomes clear that this spike 
is a killer mushroom. Mm. It's the fruiting body of a parasitic fungus called Ophiocordyceps unilateralis. Now, there are a lot of species of related entomoparasitic fungi, each targeting a different host organism. Unilateralis specifically targets carpenter ants and their close relatives. Now, you might be wondering... Why did that observed behavior take place? Now, remember all the stuff the ant did. To review, the ant becomes infected with the fungal Mm -hmm. parasite. It climbs to a leaf 25 centimeters off the forest floor. It clamps on with its mandibles. It dies. And then the fruiting body of the fungus erupts from the ant's head and grows long. So why does the ant go to the leaf? Like, is this just its preferred place to die? It's true that ants are social insects. And Robert, I don't know if you've read this before. Sometimes they will intentionally remove themselves from their colony when they develop an infectious parasite. Hmm. I, I I don't know if I've read that before. I've certainly read about them removing infected individuals from the premises. Yeah, like, that's definitely true. Mm-hmm. When they, when you detect an infection on your fellow ant, it's like, okay, time to go on a trip, buddy. <laughs> and they carry you out away from where you can infect other ants. Um, but yeah, so you have to be wondering, like, is this some kind of social insect altruistic, uh, act? Is this like the elephant graveyard for sick ants? Mm-hmm. No, the truth is a lot creepier. Instead, we should ask, how does the fungus spread? Like, how does it reach new hosts? Well, it spreads by infecting ants with its spores, which are produced by these fruiting bodies, the uh, the bulge just below the tip of that fungal head spike, which uh, the spike is known as the stroma. And what's walking around on the forest floor, the 25 centimeters beneath the dead ant and its head spike? More ants. More hosts. So the ant doesn't climb the leaf because it wants to. The ant climbs the leaf because somehow the fungal infection makes it climb the leaf. The behavior is not for the good of the ant. It's for the good of the fungus. It's essentially going home. It's it's reaching higher ground and then saying... Take me home next phase in my uh, my parasitic journey. Yeah. Let us begin the death reign. Yes. <laughs> uh, so the the fungus often now gets an, an additional appellation, not just Ophiocordyceps unilateralis, but Ophiocordyceps unilateralis sensu lato, which for some reason keeps evoking the spirit of like a tool album name. It does. It does. It reminds me of lateralis. A yeah. Lot, yeah. Uh, so, uh, lato means broadly speaking in Latin, and this indicates that scientists believe the correct taxonomy of this species and its related cousins uh, of fungi basically have not been fully sorted out yet. Strains of this fungus ultimately might get sorted into different genus and species categories that could change. Because, yeah, we have a number of, um, of Ophiocordyceps and also Cordyceps yeah, as well, well. I think Cordyceps... Is uh is like an archaic terminology for like Ophiocordyceps used to be known as Cordyceps yes. yeah. unilaterally. Yeah, a number of these species, these particular species, when you look at them, uh, the the older studies are just saying Cordyceps as opposed to Ophiocordyceps. Yeah, so basically, there's some some taxonomic stuff that's still being worked out. Yeah, and so the Sensulato is on there to let you know like this these words could be different in the future. Yeah. Now, if someone might be inclined to think that the scientists just realized that everyone had cordyceps down, yeah. and then and they thought, well, we need to make that word a little more complicated. Let's let's add a few more <laughs> syllables to the name. Well, I mean, a lot of people still just say cordyceps yeah. when they talk about this. I know I I often do. So one of the big researchers in Ophiocordyceps has been the entomologist David Hughes at Penn State. Mm-hmm. And one of the interesting things he points out about this is that it's an example of what Richard Dawkins called the extended phenotype. Uh, so in an organism, the phenotype is all of the externally observable characteristics that emerge from that organism's genome acting within its environment. So uh, your personal phenotype includes your hair, your eyes, the shape of your body, your height, but also your behavior, like if you like black licorice, that's part of your phenotype. <laughs> the way you talk is part of your phenotype. Uh, but when Dawkins coined the idea of the extended phenotype, he was pointing out that the externally manifested effects of our genes are not only the parts of our body and the behaviors of those parts, but also external effects and artifacts within the environment and even within other organisms. So a beaver's dam is part of the beaver's extended phenotype and cars and toasters are part of the human phenotype. But these are all things that these organisms have made 
yeah. out of the natural world. Right. They are products of that organism's genes interacting with the environment. Mm-hmm. Now, how does this apply to the Ophiocordyceps? Well, look at the infected ant. Uh, Hughes has written, quote, while the manipulated individual may look like an ant, it represents a fungal genome expressing fungal behavior through the body of an ant. So if the ant's body is doing the climbing and the clamping, really it's the fungus and its genes that are driving the behavior. This is what you're looking at now is a fungal organism. It just happens to be inside an ant's body. Yeah. And it's, how different it, I mean, it's rather different, but it's, you could compare it to say a human being who's wearing a, an all leather uh, outfit. You know, <laughs> they are, they are kind of wearing the carcass of a pig. Yeah. Um, it may be a very stylish carcass of a pig, uh-huh. uh, but uh, you know, to what extent are they, you're not looking at pure human anymore. Right. From, from a sort of like a survival and reproduction point of view, that thing crawling around is fungus. Mm-hmm. It's not ant anymore. It's not insect. Right. So I just wanted to talk about a few more interesting facts about the uh, the Ophiocordyceps. Now these are previously established facts, right? Or yeah, yeah, we're yeah. not getting into any of the new we're, stuff. This is yet. this is not from the new paper yet. So one of the things is how does the spore get into the ant's body? We know we've said that there's this, uh, you know, once you create the stroma mm-hmm. and it's hanging off the leaf and it's raining down, the death rain is falling on the forest floor. It's spreading these spores, but what happens? Well. The spore enters the ant's body by penetrating the cuticle, and it does this with the help of a corrosive enzyme that eats through the ant's tough exoskeleton. So the ant picks up a killer spore from the reign of death zone, and then the spore attaches to the ant, and then it pushes through the ant's exoskeleton with a mix of this solvent enzyme and mechanical force. And then once the fungal cells are inside, they multiply within the fluid of the ant's circulatory system. Now, we should we take a pedantic note? Some articles have been <laughs> using some articles have been using the word blood, like ant blood. Mm-hmm. Um, I think even some entomologists would probably say that for shorthand. But there are we should make clear differences between vertebrate and insect circulatory systems. Yes. Um, so ants and other insects have a very different kind of circulatory system than vertebrates like us do. Insects do not have a closed circulatory system of tube shaped blood vessels. And they also don't have blood, technically. What they have is known as an open circulatory system, where a pumping organ distributes this heterogeneous fluid around inside the body cavities, and all of the major organs are bathed in this sort of open sea of fluid. Uh, as we said, the fluid is not blood, but it's this substance known as hemolymph. And the hemolymph doesn't have red blood cells, so it's not the major way of distributing oxygen throughout the body. Instead, it does distribute nutrients and it does remove waste, but in a slightly less organized fashion than the blood of vertebrates. But if you want to call it blood, uh, just for the yeah. you know, simplicity of explanation, then uh, by all means, uh, sure. go ahead. Yeah. Now, the parasitic fungal cells get into this fluid and then they multiply inside the ant's body for about 16 to 25 days until they reach the point where the the ant begins to display the characteristic biting behaviors, the, the mandible clamping of unilateralis infection. The ant bites down on a leaf or another piece of plant matter, usually the main vein on the bottom side of a leaf, with its mandibles and it doesn't let go. Now, I wanted to mention a few more interesting behavioral facts uh, from a study by a team led by David Hughes uh, that was published in BMC Ecology in 2011. And they, they studied unilateralis in a Thai rainforest and found that the infected ants, like one thing you might wonder is how do they get around, right? Mm-hmm. Does, does the fungus actually direct them to like, here, go to that sapling and crawl up? Instead, what they found there is that the infected ants sort of display random walking patterns. It's almost like they're they're just sort of like trying directions randomly. Huh. And uh, if they try to climb back up to their nest in the canopy, convulsions will make them fall off and fall back down to the forest floor. So they're sort of bound to the earth. Now, eventually, the, this phase of erratic wandering around stops when they find a leaf and then they, they do the death grip. So they say, quote, transitions from erratic wandering to death grips on a leaf vein were abrupt and synchronized around solar noon. Hmm. That's kind of odd. So if we were to imagine this with a like a fictional humanoid zombie, it would yeah. be like the zombie bumbles around the apartment building until it just happens upon the roof. Yeah. But once it's there, it's 
it's time to get down. Well, I don't know what the equivalent would be. It, it straps itself to the helicopter landing pad or something. <laughs> um, and waits for a helicopter and then uses that to spread its spores as yeah. it travels. Or just along. breaks into yeah. a thriller dance. That that might be the final stage, really, that we're supposed to witness. There you go. Or does that uh, does that party from Independence Day on the roof of the skyscraper where they all say welcome? <laughs> it could be. Now, once the ant climbs onto a leaf and locks onto vein tissue with its mandibles, quote, extensive atrophy of the mandibular muscles sets in. And this is kind of interesting. So it gets the ant to bite down and then it attacks the mandibular muscles of the ant to say like, okay, you're, you, that, that's it. You're not doing anything else with these muscles from mm-hmm. now on. So it can't really let go. Uh, and so it's, it remains stuck to the leaf like that after it dies. And the atrophy seems to be caused by high densities of single celled stages of the fungus inside the ant's head. So the head fills up with fungal cells. And they make the mandible muscles atrophy away, and then you're just locked on there like a vice. So this is all pretty terrifying. I mean, yeah. it, there's a reason that this story uh, and, and all the research that's associated with it uh, keeps grabbing headlines. It keeps influencing, uh, you know, not only our, our science journalism but even our fiction. Uh, you know, various uh, uh, film and video game uh, properties have have been directly influenced by this fabulous model. Yeah, I know it's been in some movies. I haven't seen the movies. The uh, uh, a, a strain of the cordyceps fungus is the zombie creating parasite in the video game The Last of Us, where the basic conceit is that this type of parasite has jumped into human hosts. Yeah, it's, it's even popped up in uh, Dungeons and Dragons. Oh, yeah. Uh, where you have a lot of, you know, fungal creatures in the Underdark and uh, the recent campaign uh, out of the abyss. Uh, includes some, uh, some, some illustrations and descriptions of particular mind control fungi that like take over characters and then eventually cause the mushroom to pop out of the top of their skull. Nice. Yeah. Is it mushroom-shaped on the head, or is it more like the stroma we've seen here, like a big spike with maybe a ball toward the end of it? Uh, it was more abstract like that, yeah, or at least the illustrations uh, in the book uh, depicted as such. So, um, so it's yeah, it's it's a very inspiring model. And if we had if there had been no further research on it, I think it would have continued to inspire us. Yeah. Uh, but when we when we come back from this last break, we will get into this new research that uh, that really. Uh, makes the whole prospect even more terrifying, I think. All right, we're back. So what is this recent development in the world of cordyceps fungus? Well, I I will say I first found out about this uh, in an article by one of my favorite science writers mm-hmm. uh, at The Atlantic, Ed Yong, yep. uh, who who wrote about this in November. So we went back and checked this out. And some of our listeners sent us this article and we're like, hey, are you ever going to do, you know, uh, an episode on this subject. So th- I guess that's how we ended up here today. Yeah. But uh, believe it or not, the story about uh, the Ophiocordyceps is even creepier than we first realized. I think we've been through a couple of stages of escalating creepiness. So it has been well established that the fungus manipulates the ant's behavior. It forces it to climb up into the air about 25 centimeters over the forest floor and become this possessed spore bomber, just a raining death upon the other ants from its colony. But it was not yet understood exactly how the fungus got the ants to follow this complex and highly specified behavior. After all, this isn't exactly something simple. You know, it's not just like make the ant freeze in place so it's vulnerable to predators. Yeah, make it want this food instead of that food, that sort of thing. Or make it run around in random erratic motion. Mm -hmm. Uh, It requires the ant to find the plant stalk, climb up the sapling to a very specific height, and then clamp onto the plant with its mandibles and never let go. That That is like weirdly specified behavior, right? Yeah. And if I had to guess, I'd assume it did this by invading the brain with its cells and then either mechanically attacking or chemically attacking some brain tissues to trigger a series of instinctual behaviors in the ant to make this take place. Now, there may very well be some of that going on in terms of chemical triggering of behaviors, right? There's a 2017 study by uh, Fredrickson et al. Uh, in Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences just this year called Three-Dimensional Visualization of a Deep Learning Model Reveal Complex Fungal Parasite Networks in Behaviorally Manipulated Ants. And in this study, researchers created a 3D model of an ant infected with unilateralis to see what all of the fungal growth was doing inside of the ant's body. 
so how do they do this? Well, they, they use scanning electron mis- microscopy. And uh, so <laughs> this actually involved making very, very thin, I wanted to say paper thin, but much thinner mm-hmm. than paper, ant slices. The, they, they, so they took an infected ant and sliced it into segments that were each just about 50 nano, nanometers thick a piece. Uh, in, in Ed Yong's article, he says that the ants were, quote, julienned. I think that was a really amazing word choice. But uh, the thickness of these slices is roughly the length of a single hepatitis virus. Wow. So we're talking about seriously thin possessed ant slices. It made me think about that scene with the garlic and Goodfellas. I've never seen Goodfellas, so uh, yeah, I just assume this is like a torture scene with Joe Pesci, like he's slicing people up like garlic. Or something. No, oh, that'd be amazing. No, in fact, it's a cooking scene. There's ah. a scene where all the all the mob bosses are in prison together, mm-hmm. uh, except for them because they pay off the guards and everything. Prison's great, so they just constantly cook and eat delicious food. <laughs> And the, the, like the big boss of the, the mafia in it prepares sauces by slicing garlic with a razor blade. And he oh, sliced, wow. they, they talk about how he slices it so thin it would just liquefy in the pan. Huh. All right. So in this case, though, of course, we're, we're not, we're not slicing garlic. We're sliding, slicing infected ants. Uh-huh. So they repeat this slice and dice number some 2,000 times over a 24 hour period. And along the way, they're capturing images of each slice. And that's with the scanning electron microscope. So that's giving you incredibly detailed images of of very small stuff. Then they're able to stack these images to create a 3D digital model of the ant. And this is where AI researchers led by Danny Chin, professor of computer science and engineering at University of Notre Dame, enters the picture, busting out artificial intelligence and machine learning algorithms to analyze the images. They basically train computers to tell the difference between fungal and ant cells to just see how much of this organism is ant and how much of it is invading fungus. You're going to like the answer. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of it is invading fungus. And there are some illustrations, Robert, We'll try to link some of the illustrations on our landing page, right? So if you want to go to stufftoblowyourmind.com, check out the landing page. We'll link out to these. These images are terrifying. So they're they're intramuscular pictures, right? Mm -hmm. So you get to see the ant's muscles inside its exoskeleton, and they're just surrounded by these wreaths of fungal cells. Yeah, like just imagine like tiny, tiny vines growing about around every detail uh, inside the muscle tissue. There's one picture we've got here that's a 3D reconstruction of the ant uh, uh, mandible adductor muscle, Mm -hmm. and it it looks like it's got, I I hate to invoke my favorite, no, I don't hate to, I love to, it's got a crab monster on it. (laughs) There's a yellow crab monster crawling on this muscle, and what this actually is is just this huge collocation of networked fungal cells. Yeah, so what what they basically discovered here is that the fungal cells were present through virtually all regions of the host ant's body in, in a way that suggested they, they might be interconnected as well, networked even. And what's more, the stuff was clustered just outside the brain, but they didn't seem to be uh, any in the brain, hmm. which which makes you question a lot of these ideas about uh, about you know brain control, mind control um, uh, within the ant. I mean, that's almost the exact opposite of what I would have thought. Right. I would have thought that you'd see most of these cells in the brain, invading the brain tissue or central nervous tissue to control the behavior, I wouldn't expect to see it so much in, you know, the legs and the mandibles and all that. Yeah, but again, this is the Mona Lisa of uh, of mind control parasites. Uh, One of the things that that Young points out in his article is that other brain parasites, not only do they get into the brain, but in some cases they destroy the brain to change an organism's behavior. Or he's, he points out a flatworm that, quote, forms a carpet-like layer over the brain of the California killifish, leaving the brain intact while forcing the fish to behave erratically and draw the attention of birds. Mm. So, uh, yeah, this is something entirely more complex going on. Uh, but it does force us to reconsider uh, the, the previous notion that this was more of just a straight-up mind control, a hijacking of the brain. Uh, now, certainly, this isn't – they're not saying that there's not some reprogramming of behavior going on here. Right. That but could very some, well be happening chemically, right? Right. There's some sort of chemical 
process probably going on. But there's also this network extending throughout the body. I mean, we keep saying mind control. That's probably an unscientific yeah. term. Yeah. Uh, I know I've used it and that's not quite the right. What we should be saying for scientific accuracy is behavior control. Yes. Uh, because, you know, who wants to say what the mind of an ant is when possessed by this thing? Though we might speculate a little bit on that in a second. <laughs> um, but yeah, if it's not mind control, is it more like body control? Yeah. So the, uh, the interesting thing about the brain here is that the researchers uh, hypothesize that the creature's captive brain, essentially captive, think about that, this network has, has moved throughout the body, taken over the body, and the brain is just preserved in there like it's a Mego brain canister in a Lovecraft story. But it's preserved <laughs> so that it can, it, it can perform the final uh, act that is necessary, biting onto the vegetation and then never letting go. Wow. Yeah. So it's, it, I mean, what's what's worse, the 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 parasitic organism that destroys your brain to control your body, or the parasitic organism that holds off and says, "No, we're not done with you yet. We have one more thing for you to to do." This is one of those findings that's so cool. I I am afraid it's going to be subject to the to the retraction in a year or something, just because oh, doesn't that always haps, happen? You know, they're going to uh, put feathers on our dinosaur. No, <laughs> no, no, no. Like in a year, it'll be like, no, no, no. Really, it is just chemical alteration of the brain mm-hmm. and. The, the, they're, they're not really controlling the muscles so directly, but for now, th- this is glorious, and uh, I hope I hope it's true. I hope this is <laughs> this is the correct analysis. Uh, I have a wonderful quote from David Hughes here. Uh, again, he's the associate professor of, professor of entomology and biology at Penn State, who's been doing uh, all this wonderful research uh, with this uh, particular fungus. And he said in uh, the press release. We found that a high percentage of the cells in a host were fungal cells. In essence, these manipulated animals were a fungus in ants' clothing. <laughs> so that's, uh, that's, that's, that's quite a vision. So to speculate about being inside the ant's mind, if there are, if there were such a thing. Yeah, as impossible as it is to try and think as an ant and to imagine the ant's experience, uh, yeah, what would that be like? Would it be like, like you're locked inside your body and your body is doing things and you're, I guess you're also like behaviorally you're modified as well. You want to do these things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet you're, 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 you're still able to think, I guess. Again, these are, this is all anthrop- anthropomorphic uh, complexity uh, when we try and uh, imagine what an ant thinks, mm-hmm. but it is, oh man, it's, it's just so nightmarish. Fortunately, this could never happen in a human being, right? Well, one would hope. Not outside of a video game, right? <laughs> yeah, you would hope. And I, I think there's no good reason to think that uh, that a fungus like this could parasitize humans. But if we just want a hint of that kind of creepiness, mm-hmm. let's try. Most parasites, it is true, have highly specified life cycles where they're really closely associated with their host organism. Uh, but Ophiocordyceps fungi have been documented performing amazing, quote, host jumps. Oh. Not just to different species, not just to different arthropods, but even across literally kingdoms of life. Jeez. Yeah. Uh, so a 2000 study in the Journal of Molecular Biology and Evolution by uh, Naru Niko and Takema Fukatsu found that though most species of back then they were calling it cordyceps fungus. Yes. And though most of these were adapted to arthropod hosts like insects and spiders and so forth, at the time about 20 of the known 300 species were parasitic not to arthropods but to hearts truffles. Huh. Truffles, truffles, like truffle yeah. mushrooms, like hearts truffles are are fungi uh, of the genus Elaphomyces. Huh? <laughs> So using phylogenetic analysis, they discovered that the parasites of the heart's truffles were originally, long ago, parasites of cicada nymphs. Oh, man. Quote, the common habitats of cicada nymphs and heart's truffles deep underground and associated with tree roots suggest that the interkingdom host jumping from animalia to fungi may have been promoted by the overlapping ecological niche of the unrelated hosts. I mean, this is so crazy. This is like if someone came to you and they said, hey, there's something wrong with uh, one of the ferns 
uh, that I'm growing in my home. Well, uh-huh. What's wrong with your ferns? It has tapeworms. Like you would just say, <laughs> no, 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 that's impossible. Tape, we know where tapeworms reside. They yeah. are not, they are not going to jump over into another uh, kingdom entirely and start, uh, wreaking havoc there. Yeah. You normally wouldn't see things like this mm-hmm. because uh, a parasite needs to be specified to its host. Like how would he, how would it even work in a body as different from an ant's as say like a mammal's? So you really hopefully don't have to expect anything like that happening. Uh, but man, this is, it is the an creepiness. example. Yeah. The, it's an example where, where nature really throws you for a curve here and just illustrating what is possible. Yeah. Um, uh, and yeah, so let the, let the nightmares fly, I guess, but, but don't become too paranoid over it. I, I will say there's one thing working in our favor, which is that I read that the, uh, Ophiocordyceps fungus itself is subject to fungal parasitism. Oh, okay. So there is a hyperparasite, which is the name for a parasite that parasitizes a parasite. Yes. Uh, a hyperparasite fungus that attacks Ophiocordyceps. And Ophiocordyceps has to have defensive measures to protect itself against this fungal parasite. Oh, wow. Parasites within parasites within parasites. Yeah, it's parasites all the way down. You know, uh, as we, we close out here, uh, I do want to mention another favorite parasite of mine that is uh, also an Ophiocordyceps, Ophiocordyceps uh, sinensis, uh, which uh, um, imagine people, a number of our listeners have run across this before, especially if you have visited a, a, a Chinese apothecary shop or just traveled in the East in mm-hmm. general. Uh, I think this one used to just be called cordyceps sinensis. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. This is one where you find there is there's been studied a lot. There are a lot of papers on it, and most of the papers are a little older and afford, refer to it as cordyceps uh, sinensis. It's native to the mountains of Tibet and Nepal, where it parasitizes larvae of ghost moths and uh, produces a fruiting body, mm-hmm. uh, much like the, the these other uh, cordyceps that we've discussed. It's often described there as a root. That's allegedly half vegetable and half caterpillar, and it's exported uh, as an energy booster and an aphrodisiac. So according to uh, Lonely Planet, the Tibetans uh, call it Yartsa Gumbu, uh, but it's highly prized in traditional Chinese medicine where it's known as Dongchong Chao or winter worm summer grass, also mm. known as the Himalayan Viagra. Um, <laughs> And you'll see it used in like a ginseng-like tonic, and uh, the, the tonic is sometimes used to strengthen the body or in the, or used in the treatment of kidney and lung problems. Now, there there are a number of papers out there that look at the 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 the, the alleged uh, medical properties mm-hmm. of this or this uh, organism. Uh, I have not really researched it myself yet. I haven't I haven't uh, dived into that particular area of the research. So that's something we could come back to at some point if we wanted to on the show. Yeah, I wonder what potential there is. Yeah, it would be interesting to tease it apart in the future for sure. Or to get inside it and erupt from the back of its head. Yeah. So speaking of which, I just glanced over at our uh, our producer Alex and uh there there is a small crack in the top of his skull. A, and a, a fruiting body is beginning to emerge from it. So I think that means we're out of time. Man, Alex does good work. That's a talented parasite. Yeah, he just works right through it. He's committed. All right. Uh, in the meantime, if you want to listen to other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's our mothership. That's where you'll find uh, all the podcast episodes. Going back to the beginning of time, you'll find uh, blog posts, videos, links out to our various social media accounts, such as Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram. Facebook is where you'll find that uh, lovely discussion module. It's a closed group that you can join and chat with uh, other listeners as well as your hosts. Oh, and if you want to support the show, uh, a great way to do it is to leave us a positive uh, review. Give us stars or whatever the uh, the, the, the rating uh, symbol happens to be at whatever uh, system you use to listen to the podcast. Yeah, give us a nice Yelp review. <laughs> yes. But hey, you can also get in touch with us the old-fashioned way. Oh, that's right. And we should also mention you should check out the landing page for today's episode where we're going to uh, link to some images and articles we referenced in, in the episode. But like he said, if you want to get in touch with us by email, it's blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.
Thank you.